You like that? It's a little French to me. Yeah, it's true. I don't. I'm not a big fan. Yeah. Oh, see. Okay. And I like the French. Yeah, the I, French. I, I love France. I'm a big yeah. Francophile. So. I think Jeff Daniels is not a fan. Jeff Daniels? Remember he said, yeah, the French are animals. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That <laughs> one movie I remember. Yeah, that one movie that you barely remember, the greatest movie of all time, Dumb and Dumber. That was a superb movie. <laughs> superb, superb. Yeah, for history fanatics like us, that's the movie that you need to see. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Dustin Bass. And I'm Alan Joaquin. And we are the Sons of History, and we are ecstatic to use a word that you like to use quite often. Um, mm-hmm. We are ecstatic about the show that we are going to be having today. Alex Kershaw, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous novels, um, obviously nonfiction. Um, I was going to say novels? I don't know why I said novels. That's, Let me rephrase yeah. that. Let me redo that. That was stupid. Wow. I'm used to that, but go ahead. I know. We are ecstatic about having Alex Kershaw, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous works on World War II. And we had him on the show last year. We got to meet him last year when he came into town. Hang out. We're best friends. Because I think, um, Wait. I don't know if you got it, but I know he and I, we went to Charming Charlie and we bought the BFF necklace, the one where the heart is broken in two. You know, if, it was he's, amazing. if he's listening to this right now, I he's hope going he is. to. <laughs> He's going to deny that he ever met us. I think he's going to not confirm or deny. He's going to disavow you. <laughs> no, it didn't really happen, but but we did have dinner. It's with not him. out of the realm of possibility. No, no but we did. We we, we did, did have, have dinner, dinner with him. Yeah. Although there were many other people there with us, right. but uh, yeah, it was fun talking to him. Yeah, he's just was. a down to earth man. Yep, he yep. really is. It was good times. He's not stuffy in any way like uh, some of these uh, these professors. From, from Oxford. Cause he How went, often he went, have you hung out with professors from Oxford? Well, um, name one time. Hmm. Uh, from Oxford? Yeah. Um, give me a, a year or two while I go meet one, and I'll say. But you know, he went to Oxford. I believe he went to Oxford. I'm. I, that's what uh, I thought. I read that somewhere. I have no idea where he went. But he, brilliant man. I mean, he, brilliant he just man. Knows his stuff. I would not he, be surprised if he went to Oxford. I think he did go to yeah. Oxford. You know who else went to Oxford? Um, a lot of other people who were brilliant. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, we're going to be talking about World War II, mm-hmm. primarily 1945 in Europe, but we're going to be asking a number of questions about what happened in the European theater. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we're going to go ahead and um, get started. Alex, how are you doing, man? I'm good. Great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you. It is really great to have you on the show. Um, this month, this month of May, um, we have commemorated the entire month to the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II in Europe. Um, and we really couldn't think of a better way to end off this month um, with, 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 with having you as, as, as our special guest. I mean, we couldn't have come up with a better way to, to end it. And interestingly enough, um, Providence, perhaps, this episode is going to come out on Memorial Day. Um, and so we just think it's incredibly fitting and, and it's perfect. So uh, we're very excited about this conversation that we're going to have. And um, we just have Alex give us a rundown of his books that he's written. Um, well, I've written several books about World War II, uh, including The Bedford Boys, which is about 
the community in Bedford, Virginia, that lost 19 guys on Omaha Beach, which was in some ways the true story behind Saving Private Ryan and The Longest Winter, as you said, about the most decorated platoon of World War II, American platoon who fought to the last bullet in the Battle of the Bulge, The Few, which is probably my favorite, which is about the American pilots who 80 years ago, actually almost to the day, um, joined the RAF and fought in the most important battle um, of the 20th century, which I would argue was the Battle of Britain because there would have been no D-Day, no European liberation without victory in the Battle of Britain. Um, Escape from the Deep about the USS Tang, the most decorated, most lethal US submarine of World War II. Um, and there are there are others. Um, the first wave came out last year, which is about the very first uh, combat commanders to see action on D-Day who had their most critical missions and made all the difference on that longest of days. And right now I'm working on a book about the most decorated division in U.S. history, which was the 3rd Infantry Division. And that division um, gained 40 Medal of Honors in World War II. It's the most decorated division, as I said, in U.S. history. And um, I'm writing about four or five guys from the 3rd ID, including Audie Murphy, who's the most decorated soldier in American history. Um, But my main focus is on some extraordinary guys who fought most of the way through Europe with the third ID. The third ID was um, longest in combat in Europe, lost most men, and was the most decorated, simply because it saw the most action, um, five amphibious invasions, um, all the way from Casablanca to the Eagle's Nest. People think that it's the 101st Airborne, the Band of Brothers guys that won World War II, that they've watched way too much TV. Um, but in fact, the guys that liberated the Eagle's Nest and, Ber- and Berkeley's Garden right at the end, actually almost you know, about two weeks ago, um, 75 years ago, um, that was the third ID, the third infantry division. One of the great unheralded U.S. combat divisions of World War II, in fact, in, in history. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying that. I'm about halfway through, and I'm, I'm with uh, a guy called Morris Britt right now, who is was an NFL player. He played for the Detroit Lions and he was drafted, became an officer and was a company commander in uh, September of 1943 when the Salerno invasion occurred. And that was almost a complete fiasco. We landed way too few men on a on a shoreline in Italy that was very heavily defended and uh, were nearly thrown back into the Mediterranean. But anyway, uh, Morris Britt, um, was from Arkansas. He was a star football player at the University of Arkansas and um, played for the Lions for a season and a superb athlete, obviously, but also a superb officer. It was almost as if war to him was a different kind of game. A highly competitive guy. And um, believe it or not, um, he became the first. He was a captain of L Company, uh, 30th Infantry Regiment of the 3rd ID, and he became the first American um, to win every single medal for valor in a single war. So in wow. every war before the Second World War, I mean, people have had medals thrown here, there, and everywhere, but he became the first American to win 
you know, to, to go to notch every single one. You know, Bronze Star, Silver Star, DSC, Medal of Honor. Um, he was the first guy to do it, and people have forgotten about him. They don't know. I mean, I guess if you're a really hardcore Detroit Lions fan, mm-hmm. um, do, the, do the Detroit Lions still exist? I was going to say, and that would yeah. probably be very difficult. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that'd be impossible. Yeah, it's mean, not the Patriots. I guess, well. I guess if you're like, if, I guess if you're like 95 years old, you could be a hardcore Detroit Lions fan still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> in your, but anyway, nostalgia in terms of nostalgia. But anyway. Yeah, so he's one of the guys, and then I'm I'm, I'm also writing about three or four. They a, the, the third ID had a um, really a couple of really fantastic generals. The first guy they that commanded the third ID was a guy called Truscott, and I think you probably got, you guys have probably heard that name before. But Truscott was a kind of rock star of World War Two in terms of generals. Um, He's kind of patterned with a really nice leather jacket, you know. Wasn't he? Um, wasn't he Patton's favorite general? I heard that uh... he was one of Patton was a big fan. So an Eisenhower. And in fact, um, when you get uh, Truscott um, was commander of the Third ID from um, Casablanca in 1942, November 1942, all the way through to January of 1944, Anzio, and he was promoted. He was whisked away from the Third ID. He didn't want to go because he, he loved that division. He fought with it very hard. And But uh, the Allies, well, certainly uh, Eisenhower and Marshall uh, needed someone to to sort out the mess that, that was Anzio at the time. Um, we were stalemated there for almost three months. Uh, 90,000, I think, Allied casualties stuck on a plane 60, 70 miles south of Rome, couldn't move and um, suffering, you know, very high attrition. Um, and we needed to break out and um, Truscott was chosen to be the guy to to lead the breakout of the Allied armies in, in at Anzio. Um, I did a fantastic job. So, um, yeah, kind of cool characters, you know? Now, I, I, I want to say that I visited his grave in Arlington because that's where I heard... Uh, that he was Patton's favorite, and he has a very—I I don't know if you—if if I'm talking about the right person, I'm pretty sure it was him. But he has a very simple grave, um, deep deep in the back of uh, Arlington. I don't know if you had the opportunity to to visit him. No, I haven't. I haven't been there. No, but uh, yeah, he was—he uh, came up with what was called the Truscott Trot, and um, so he trained the Third ID so so much in North Africa before the Sicily invasion. Mm-hmm. Which was July 1943. So there was a little bit of fighting when the Americans in, uh, arrived in North Africa in November 1942. Not much, very very low casualties. But the Third ID were the, the first um, Americans to see action in in, uh, in the European theatre, and then they trained until the June of 1943 to invade Sicily, and again the first wave. Uh, that was the 45th, and then the big red one, and the and the and the, um, and the third. Um, but Truscott was a really big, big, ta- hard taskmaster. Um, sort of didn't model himself on pattern, but but um, was was just as tough in some ways, um, and a big big stickler for fitness. And um, he designed or developed this training. Uh, um, 
process whereby you would never march anywhere. You'd trot somewhere. You literally would be a forced march, and you'd be you'd be moving pretty fast. Um, and that was called the Truscott Trot. And in fact, just after we um, arrived in Sicily in July of 1943, um, Patton was obsessed with uh, reaching. Palermo and then Messina. He wanted to beat Montgomery. He was very competitive and wanted to show that the American Americans in Europe were just as good as the Brits, and you know that they, they um, their time had come. And um, so Truscott ordered his men, including Audie Murphy and Britt and several of the characters I'm writing about. He ordered them to to march. I think they they did it. It was I think it may even be the fastest. Uh, march in U.S. military history where they covered 50, 53 miles in something like a day and a half. Um, it was extraordinary. Very, very arid, very hot conditions, um, little water, and they literally marched from southern Italy, southern Sicily all the way through the, the heart of that um, country to Palermo, and, and uh, the Americans were the, the liberators of Palermo in late July of 1943, but they they um, they marched quicker and fast. I think they marched faster than any other U.S. unit in military history. It was extraordinary, and that was called the Truscott Trot. Yeah. The sprinting there. Yeah. Hey, now I got a question. We had brought this up last time we had a discussion with you. Um, I believe Netflix had picked up the Liberator. What is the update on that? Um, well, I think that it's supposed to be coming out on Netflix uh, a year from now in uh, May of. 2021. I'm hoping that it will be timed for Memorial Day mm-hmm. next year. Um, it's a four-hour animated series based on my book, The Liberator. So um, with animation, as you guys know, there's an awful lot of artwork, a lot of a lot of very intensive detail that's required. So right. um, they've been working on it pretty much pretty much full time for around about two years now. So um, we'll see. I haven't I haven't uh, seen any of the, the finished footage or I haven't been that heavily involved. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, in these situations, there's some very good people um, who are producers and writers that you just let them get on with it because yeah. they, they prefer it that way. And, and so would I, you know, well, is it going to be um, like a cartoon or is it going to be something that you saw in 300 or Beowulf? Uh, yeah, it's like that. Uh, what it is, is like they use a lot of green screens. So, you know, you'll see the actors' faces that will be painted. Mm-hmm. So the animation will they'll animate live action, uh, and then for some of the big battle scenes, obviously the animation will will take over. You know, you don't need one of the good things about it's a new technology that I it's called trioscope um, that's been developed especially for this. So it'll be it'll look new and fresh, and the technology will be unique. It'll be the first time they've used it. Um, on this scale at this length. So four hours is quite a lot when you think about it for something that's animated. That's an awful lot of animation. So right. I'm, I'm really excited about it because I think that um, the uh, I mean the writer is the guy that wrote Die Hard and The Fugitive. Oh, well. So, I mean, that's a good good track record there. Oh, okay. yeah. So. Uh, I think that uh, it, could, it, it could just look fresh and really fresh and new and bring a whole, but hopefully bring a whole new generation of, of um, people, um, not, not just in America, but in Europe too, to 
to the to to history and World War Two in particular. You know, I mean, I think that one of the things that I'm always surprised by is that people think that kids aren't interested in history, and, and of course they are. They're, they're no different to our generation or any other generation, and they certainly watch lots of really great war movies and they they play video games. You know, they they know what an MG42 is and they know what a smashing machine pistol is better than. You know, a lot of the guys actually fought there. Yeah. <laughs> they fired one about 10,000 times more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Call of Duty. They killed go. millions of Germans, you know? <laughs> they've done, their, the Call of Duty, they've you know? done their duty for this country. <laughs> God bless them. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. So I've, uh, it should be fun. It should be cool. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. I hope that, um, it, you know, uh, I did a, I did a Zoom, um, session with a, a high school down in uh, Louisiana recently and I was just really struck by just how cool it is that you've got you know 17 18 year olds that are around about the same age as a lot of the guys that fought in World War II because we you know somehow we forget that they were extremely young mm-hmm. um, you know when we think about World War II we we um, we tend to picture you know guys at the end of their lives you know, people in, in the frames and you know, can hardly hear, and you know, are very frail as they are. But you know, it's it's good to remind ourselves that you know, these are the, the people that certainly I'm writing about were at their their physical peak, at their mental and physical peak. They were superb specimens of human beings, you know, and they were had all sorts of qualities that only the young can 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 have at that great have that richness and that that potential and that that strength and that vigor and that durability you know mm-hmm. um, so i cut a long story short i think by you know world war ii or in fact any war but certainly world war ii if you're an american young american is something to to to, to cling on to and, and and feel extremely proud about and, and identify with if you're young you know if you're that age it's like this is i'm writing about people like you you know i'm writing about 22 year olds 24 year olds i'm writing about people that did an amazing job, and that were that um, were um, part of a, a generation, that part of a period in American history, which is really, really fascinating and and, and really inspiring. You know, I'm constantly reminded just what 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 a great cohort of Americans they were, what their their values, their, the way that the world um, fell in love with many of them, how 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 clear their moral mission was, how how admired they were. What a great achievement uh, a victory in World War Two was for America, um, and for American ideals, for for um, everything it's supposed to stand for at its best. It was exempt. All those factors were exemplified in, in World War Two. Well, we wanted to uh, we wanted to ask you some questions here because you have really great insight on the uh, the European theater of operations, and um, you know we have been discussing the war now, and this this week we were going to discuss 1945. Now, right. with your knowledge, why in the world did Germany continue the war after the uh, operation? Watch on the Rhine um, failed. I mean, did they not know that it was lost by then? Well, it's a combination of factors. I mean, number one, we insisted on unconditional surrender in Casablanca in January 1943. 
even Churchill had been somewhat surprised by the idea that we were going to demand unconditional surrender. He, he wasn't really in favour of that. Um, the Americans wanted it because they wanted to re, um, reassure Stalin that we weren't going to do some sort of secret deal with the Nazis um, at any point. Um, so unconditional surrender kept people fighting. In some ways, it was sort of, you know, it, you know, uh, the Germans knew that we were going to carry on right to the end and they were going to be utterly humiliated and defeated. Um, the other major factor, perhaps the most important factor, is that is Hitler. Uh, he had complete control of every aspect of Third Reich society. He, you know, he, he purged every form of opposition that you could possibly find. He ruled through terror more so at the end than in any other period. Certainly if you're German... Certainly, if you were in the Wehrmacht and the German army right at the end, it was uh, absolute and total control. Um, kangaroo courts, people shot on the spot. Um, he demanded utter loyalty. And um, so that, that there was a, a vacuum of power because there, was, there wasn't any other focus for an opposition, for an alternative within the military. He, he destroyed any, any possibility of of an alternative to him. So he was, it was literally, it all came down to Hitler right at the end and uh, until he was replaced or killed, mm-hmm. um, there, was, there, was, there was no possibility of that war ending for the ordinary German. Um, so they kept him fighting, um, which was tragic because, you know, you're right, from early 1945, certainly from when we crossed the Rhine in March of 1945, it was... You know, it was all done. That that was the point at which um, the war was effectively over. There was no hope at all, given the speed of advance on the on the Eastern Front and the overwhelming dominance that the Allies enjoyed in terms of firepower, material, air power, you name it. And it was all over by then. But they kept fighting. And in fact, what's extraordinary is the level of loss for the German. German people, and also particularly in the military. Um, I think if you look at uh, February and March and April of 1945, you've got over 300,000 Germans killed uh, in in uniform each month. So you're you're up to almost a million fatalities at the end of the war, um, which is extraordinary. Um, So yeah, a lot of teenagers getting killed by Americans that want to go home. That was the and Brits, but most of the Americans. Actually, I was reading reading a book this morning. It was quite interesting. I'm a big fan of. Um, if you want to look at this period of the war and answer questions like the one you just asked me, then I think that Max Hastings' book, Hastings's book, Armageddon, which is it's, the subtitle, I think, is the Battle for Germany. So it takes you right from the Battle of Aachen in, in September 1944 when we crossed into behind there when we actually started to fight on Nazi soil and things got very, very tough indeed and um, he traces that that progression from from the September of 1944 all the way through to the end of the war and those questions about why didn't the Germans just give up, why did they keep fighting to the very bitter end, Mm. you know, why were they still in urban combat in late April, early May of 1945, those questions are answered pretty well and and he he comes to the same conclusion as do most historians, that you know, there was it was because of the complete domination of that madman Hitler of, of every aspect of the German military and society. Um, so yeah, and um, you know, it was 
it was blood uh, a, a, a bloody trek all the way to the very end and um sadly a lot of allied soldiers a lot of americans were killed in the last few weeks of the war and i was quite struck actually reading i'm writing about some of the attitudes of 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 uh, gis towards the end who'd fought some of them had fought let's not forget for them if you were in the third id the one i'm the book i'm writing about i know is about the third idea but if you were in that unit then you could possibly have been be approaching 635 days of combat that's how long they spent on the front lines and actually in combat in world war ii so imagine having arrived in november 1942 in casablanca and you're still fighting in late april of 1945 and uh you've got 600 days of combat behind you you want it to end desperately i mean yeah. there was a, a a clear desperation for it to end it wasn't it was they weren't so much as tired and exhausted they were they were a lot of people were just quietly very desperate for it just to end and um I was actually struck by a, a quote in the, I came across from the 101st Airborne officer, because 101st Airborne, obviously you know from Band of Brothers, they got right to the, to the, um, into the Berkeley's Garden and the Eagle's Nest up in the, in the Alps, south of Munich. And uh, there was a 101st Airborne officer saying that he didn't feel proud at the end of the war at all. And which, which really struck me, I was like, like, how could you not be proud of defeating that? almost unprecedented evil, you know, the greatest evil, if you ask me, mm-hmm. in, in history. Um, how could you not be really proud of what you did? And, that, and it, the officer basically said to the effect that there'd been so much damage caused that they'd have to kill so many people and destroy so many villages and towns. And so much had been damaged within within themselves as much as to, to the German people and various countries that they'd fought through that there was an immense amount of damage at the end, and uh, I was really quite struck by that. But it was sort of just, you know, we just wanted to go home and, and stop the killing and the death and the destruction because we, you know, we can tend we tend to glamorise war way too much often. And I think the people that were there, I, mean, I certainly have not come across any any account from a veteran who was there right at the end where they were who'd fought, you know, really had seen what it was about, that where they were utterly ecstatic and you know going going crazy and, and um, you know celebrating for, for days on end I, quite the opposite I, I i was always struck by how kind of quiet and, and you know i'm sure a lot of them got absolutely blind drunk uh, but they did it any opportunity anyway but i think that there was a sort of sense of fatigue and exhaustion and just quietness and suffering and pain and just wanted desperately to go home and get the hell out of Europe, get away from the nightmares and the death and the and the savagery of it, the bestiality of it all, and the the brutality of it. So I, I think, um, yeah, it was a, a dreadful shame. That's what happens when you have rampant nationalism and you elect and you don't mind people who are racist being your your national leader and you, you divide people and you and you. Uh, Kind of militaristic, nationalistic, you know, dictatorship. Bad, bad stuff happens. <laughs> yeah, well, it tends to yeah. move that direction. Well, it's it's funny the way you you mentioned that because um, I had read a story about Cologne, 
where people were looking at the cathedral and the bridges and the whole city was just completely leveled except for the cathedral and there were these germans that started screaming at the americans you know why did you do this to yeah. us we we didn't yeah. and and i was kind of shocked by that it's i was thinking you know you did that to the whole continent you did it to uh warsaw <laughs> yeah. uh leningrad yeah. uh coventry yeah. london i mean were they yeah. that obtuse? Were they ignorant? Did they, or were they pretending they didn't know that? In the opinions of many that I have talked to, they they felt that they had it coming. Uh, I don't want to say that because I wasn't alive in that time period, but you know, I've spoken to veterans of that war, and they said that they had it coming. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? You know, they didn't know about the the camps. They didn't understand why yeah. they were treated the way they were. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think you have to, you know, it's almost impossible to be able to put yourself in the situation of an ordinary German housewife or someone that hadn't been a combatant, a civilian, and at the end of that war, just the sort of sense of everything being destroyed and you know, the, the, the rug being pulled very fast from underneath your feet. But I think you're right. You know, if you look at the the June, July of 1940, the, the jackboot had been had been stamped all across European democracy. There wasn't there wasn't a single democracy left in existence in Europe, and Britain stood alone. England was there, twenty three miles off the off the coast of France. If it hadn't been for the English Channel, we would have been under the jackboot too. And uh, our our finest intellectuals and Churchill himself, and countless Jews and trade unionists and socialists and homosexuals, and the list got very very long. They would have all been killed and murdered ritually and with great glee by the people who were leading the German people at the time. And I think that, you know, they, they there was no sense of, of, of questioning on a very profound level victory in, and complete domination of of Europe in, in 1940. And uh, to go from that peak into to a broken nation, to a defeated nation quite quickly was... Uh, didn't, probably didn't feel too quick for some of the people being bombed, but um, it was a, a major reversal. Um, it's quite interesting, you know, Angela Merkel, who's, um, I think, a really fine politician, she's the you know, Chancellor of Germany, obviously, um, has been speaking recently about the European project, because let's not forget that modern Europe was born out of that terrible conflict and um, exists to a large extent because of the commitment of American material and lives to liberating that, that continent. And uh, she talks about how you, could, you you have to be a broken-hearted German to now be able to love your country. You have to be broken-hearted by, by the fact that so much destruction and so much that you should feel guilty, you know, that, that so many people were killed by Germans, by, by um, Nazism. Um, and that to be proud of your country, you have to be kind of heartbroken by its history. And, um, and that, I think that's exactly what she's getting at, is that you have to be a super realist and, 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 and see what happened. Uh, see how easy it is to become to become nationalist and, and to become what, what Nazi Germany became. Um, the Germans are not a species apart from the rest of humankind. They're... Um, you know, you go, go and ask a, a 19-year-old student in Hong Kong right now what they think of the Chinese, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, the same kind of, you know, these, these battles for, to, to preserve freedom and democracy and human rights are, 
are ones that are never going to go away that we have to con- continually recommit to. And it helps when you have have leadership which is committed in the most basic, fundamental way to the idea of of freedom and democracy and protecting it and and, and celebrating it. You know, so I I think uh, yeah, um, it's uh, it's an interesting. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that out of the pandemic in Europe comes comes closer cooperation, comes a, a, a real commitment to to supporting every part of the of, of that European project. You know, not abandoning Greece or Spain or Portugal or poorer nations. Actually, saying we're all all of this together. We need to help properly. Um, so yeah, and I think that that kind of willingness to avoid conflict. That willingness to unite rather than to separate and divide and rule is something that is born out of the European experience of the horrors that that continent went through, you know, 75 years ago. People don't want to go back. Now, what are your uh, what are your thoughts on what happened with Dresden? Um, well, my my thoughts about Dresden are kind of like my thoughts about what happens when you have mass industrial war. And you want to end it, and uh, you're not the person that started it. So I think that you know you get into very difficult moral arguments here, very complex arguments. Because do I believe, do I personally think that you know killing you know that at least at least twenty thousand civilians in the, in, a, in 48 hours? Do I think that was necessary? Do I think it's right? Do I think it? Uh, I don't think it's particularly admirable. Uh, I can also understand why at the time the Allies wanted to destroy as much of as much of the German industrial base as they possibly could. Um, you know, Dresden was a, uh, a rail, was an important network of rail yards there. Um, it was a, an industrial target. Um, we had a very controversial um, policy, which was you know, area bombing. The Eighth Air Force was more strategic. The, but the, you know, the RAF we bombed by night, and we we hit civilian targets. We hit we hit big German cities, and we hit them often. And I think it was Churchill who said, in you know, in early 1945, Churchill was presented with the evidence of what was being wrought uh, from the air and the level of casualties. Um, and he said, you know, unless we're careful, it's going to be a complete wasteland from the Rhine all the way across to Moscow. It's going to be one, you know, in winter, it's just going to be one white wasteland. And we have to be, he was, I think he had serious moral doubts about what had been done um, from the air in Europe in World War II. Um, but, you know, September 1940, it's Rotterdam that gets hit by the Luftwaffe. Blitzkrieg itself was terror terror bombing from the air, stukas and strafing civilians and uh, killing thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, ordinary civilians in, in terror strikes. So I don't know whether it's it's something that, you know, if you start it, then you can't really argue with how the person who was the victim, the, the person who was attacked, fights back and then ends it. Um, and I think the same argument certainly can be applied towards Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki, where um, you can make a very good, very, very, very good, strong case for saying that that was wrong, that 
that we shouldn't have dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and we shouldn't have dropped the bomb on Nagasaki. That in fact we would have, um, through a naval blockade and through what was happening with the with the Russian advance at the time, uh, the Sino-Russian war, um, etc., that we didn't need to drop the bomb. I, I personally think that we probably probably shouldn't have in, in terms of broader morality. Um, I've been to Hiroshima. I think that 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 was a extraordinarily extraordinarily um, fatal thing to to have done. Um, but at the same time, if you were a combatant, if you'd been on Iwo Jima, if you'd been on Okinawa, um, if you were part of the U.S. forces that were lined up for Operation Iceberg, they were looking at over half a million U.S. casualties. I think, you know, the reaction of almost almost everybody that had fought on, fought against the Japanese in the Pacific was, you know, it was immense relief. And uh, I've never met a single veteran from the Pacific War who didn't agree with the dropping of the bomb. Um, so it's, wait, wait, they yeah. they did agree with it or they did not? I've never met anybody that said they didn't agree with it. They oh. all agreed with it. Okay, yeah. Because I, um, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I met, you know who Tom Farabee is? No, who said it? Sorry? Tom Farabee was the man in the Enola Gay, the bombardier who released the bomb. And, oh, okay. And uh, I asked him. I had the pl- the privilege of meeting him in the '90s, and I asked him about that. And uh, you know, his I, I asked him what what were your thoughts? Did you regret it? He said, absolutely not. He's you know he he and many other vets from that war uh, or the Pacific Theater all told me the same thing that um, they felt they didn't may not have used it in so many words, but they had it coming. They they be, they started it in Nanking. They leveled a lot of Chinese cities. They massacred civilians. They yeah. they wiped out Manila, and they they had no problem with what happened with Tokyo, uh, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and and uh, although I haven't, I've never asked uh, an ETO vet about Dresden. Um, when we talk about say Berlin, they were like they had it coming. Look what they you know they would mention Coventry, London. Uh, Rotterdam and Warsaw, um, as well as some of the Soviet cities, and they're like, you know, they started it, we we ended it. So, yeah, yeah. I know. I think it's 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 a it's a it's a, yeah, it's a very it's a very um, interesting line of discussion. You know, where, where do you at what point do you not use everything you've got to end it? I mean, you know, when you're in such a brutal industrial war, you know, do you not drop? Do you not use the secret weapon? Do you not use and it did end it. Well, however you look at it, 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 it ended it. I mean, mm-hmm. the Japanese didn't formally surrender or capitulate. They, the emperor went on the radio and basically said there's a new and terrible weapon and uh, I want to avoid further suffering of the Japanese people. Word to that effect. So, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't, they, um, it, it, definitely, it definitely did the job. It ended the war. Um, we can't argue about that. The point that Admiral Leahy at the time had and the one that that was shared with, shared by Churchill to an extent, who did have moral reservations about the use of it, um, was that you know was there an alternative? Was there a way of, of, of avoiding using the bomb and, and having and still being able to get the Japanese to capitulate without invasion? And um, I don't know that 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 argument is it's 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 not something that is just dismissed by historians. A, a lot of historians that are that can be dispassionate 
do do think that you know this is not something that's open and shut case here. There's a, a good argument that a neighbour blockade, although it would have been very very um, you know painful for the Japanese people, uh, would have probably avoided the idea that we had used a nuclear weapon on the civilian population mm-hmm. and killed so many people so fast. And uh, but the, you know one of the other arguments, one of the key points to remember is that we had it and. And we had it first, and uh, it was a way of showing the rest of the world that don't mess with me, with Uncle Sam, you know, because we're nuclear. Right. <laughs> and uh, we were in the Beijing war, the, the Cold War had already begun. Uh, relations with Stalin were very strained at the end of the war, and uh, I think uh, in the US was emerging as a global superpower. Mm-hmm. It had replaced in a matter of three or four years, and replaced the British Empire. It was a, a superpower the first time and uh, a superpower would be one super weapon was something that um, was incredibly attractive to some people and a tantalizing prospect to, to many people in Washington and so you could argue people have argued that we dropped the bomb because we had we, we wanted to say that we had it. It was like okay let's we just fired our miracle weapon what do you think of that? And uh, <laughs> it's, it certainly woke the world up. People were paying attention. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I think it. Yeah. You, know, you might want to. You might not want to repeat Pearl Harbor. You know, don't yeah. don't try that again for a while. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But on on those on those points, it it has to be a difficult line to draw <clears throat> between vengeance and military tactics, um, and not getting those two confused or combined um, because, you know, you have these, these moments where you, like you said, Churchill was questioning the, it was the moral question that came into play, um, which was, you know, is this, you know, war is already bad enough. It's, you know, war is hell as they say, but you know, now we're, now we've got to bring into the question, like, is this too much? Is this, is this too far from your perspective of, of, not even so much interviewing veterans, but just from the perspective and the viewpoint of war itself, how hard do you think it is for military leaders who have suffered from those who, like, let's take America, for instance, you know, Japan bombs Pearl Harbor. um, And then all of a sudden, you know, like France, for instance, you know, Germany invades France. um, And then you can go back to World War One as well. How hard is it for leaders to say we've got to keep that that line in the sand to where we know this is not about revenge this is about war and and getting the job done and not making it well, too much suffer well i think it, it, we have the advantage now of being able to look back and, and we have the advantage of saying that the um the leaders at the time did a pretty remarkable job um i think if you look at i mean Look, just look at Truman, for example. I mean, he came in, um, didn't, hadn't wanted to be vice president, was vice president, and then Roosevelt dies on the 12th of April, and he is sworn into into office on the uh, on that fateful day in April 1945. And you know, April 1945 was was um, was a very interesting time to be become president you know mm-hmm. uh, he has to the, the war is not yet finished in europe and it's certainly not anywhere near finished in the pacific and he has to make very big decisions and uh truman um 
took office uh, in the middle of the, uh, in the actually I think uh, 12 days into the Battle of Okinawa. And so you have suicide bombers, you have Japanese suicide bombers you know, hitting American ships. You've got thousands and thousands of casualties. You've got Japanese that won't, won't give up, um, that don't surrender. Um, Okinawa, it, it was even always bad, but I think there were you know, 12,000 by the time that Okinawa finished um, almost 75 years ago in the you know, early June of 1945, uh, you know, you've got over 12,000 American dead, over 40,000 casualties. These are horrific figures. They're very high. And, you know, the, the America's been at war for quite a while. And the, 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 the level of attrition, the level of death is getting higher and higher. And there's no stomach for it, not by the American public, not by the politicians, by anybody. They, they just want this thing to end. And yeah. I think that when they, therefore, when you see, I mean, Truman literally took office in the middle of a bloodbath. It was like the bloodiest, since the Civil War, it was the bloodiest conflict that Americans had, had, had endured. And um, it was just horrific. I mean, imagine seeing the casualty figures come back day after day after day. Kamikaze attacks on, on U.S. Uh, hospital ships. I interviewed a, a nurse who was in, on a, the USS Comfort at the time. Um, she's a hundred years old today, and um, you know she was. They were, they were they were having kamikaze attacks on hospital ships with big red crosses on them in the middle of the Pacific. It, you, know, you couldn't. The kamikaze actually aimed at the Red Cross. So when you're dealing with that kind of level of fanaticism, and you're thinking we have to send all of these young Americans in to to be slaughtered on on very on, on a very large scale. Um, I think that when off when off with the choice of dropping the bomb, it was like Truman certainly didn't hesitate. You know, um, it was okay, let's do it. He certainly never regretted the decision. Well, okay, so we we brought up Dresden. But I think, yeah, but to th- I think to end that question, to, to to end it, what you have to look at is what what happened after the war. So, right, you yeah. know. If you want to look at probably the most influential, most impactful single American of the 20th century in terms of geopolitics, you'd have to look at General Marshall and uh, the Marshall Plan. So in 1947, I think it's 1947, he comes up with this idea of being able to rebuild his defeated um, powers. And uh, it's as much in terms of containment of communism as it is in terms of, you know, American self-interest that wants to create stable democracies and allies around the world so that it can export and have a, a world market, but importantly, it also wants to prevent the evil of evil of Stalinism and extreme communism from spreading. Yeah. So you have a, a policy of containment and also uh, at the same time, it's a sort of carrot and stick. You know, the, the stick is a hard line in terms of containment, don't let communism spread, but the carrot to ravaged European democracies and, and certainly the Japanese to was to pump in, you know, huge amounts of money and diplomatic skill and goodwill and, and rebuild these countries and therefore recreate um, a democracy. Certainly that, that it worked in Western Europe and it certainly worked in Japan. And both of those countries are democratic and, and advanced capitalist societies to this day. 
Yeah, I think you bring up a very valid point on how to make that division between the moral question and, and war, and that is what happened after 1945 in Europe yeah. and in the Pacific area. I mean, yeah, we, didn't, we created didn't, we didn't, relationships. Yeah. yeah, we didn't just walk away. We didn't just right. destroy, you know, fight there, destroy it, and then walk away. What was mm-hmm. the point of that? I mean, if you, you know, unlike the Iraq war, which was just absolutely crazy and illegal, um, and profoundly disillusioning for a lot of that generation that fought it. Um, you know, what's left? There's, there's no moral, there's no moral good feeling when you look at the Middle East, at, at those countries now, at Afghanistan or Iraq. It was no, you know, it was, it's, it's, it's not like looking at Europe in 1950 or Japan in 1950 where you have these resurgent economies with people very keen to vote and be democratic and, and uh, you know, very different picture yeah very different circumstances too yeah yeah i i was going to tell you that in you know when i discuss world war ii and how it led into the cold war i sometimes like to tell people that world war ii ended in 1989 with the fall of the uh, berlin wall and uh, all the you know with what happened in romania and in hungary all those countries where they finally threw off the soviet uh, occupation I mean, how do you, how do you feel about that? Um, well, you know, some people say that the, the Second World War began in 1914. Some people say it started in 1870. Or mm-hmm. um, you know, there's the, the linkage between the First World War and the Second World War is obviously profound. It's a, you know, one one series of events led to the other. Um, but if you're talking about um, the the world that was set in motion by what the events of 1945, what happened in April and May of 1945, then yeah, Eastern Europe was was not liberated. It was it was conquered. And it was it was um, it suffered uh, in some cases just as greatly as it had under a few years of Nazi rule. So I don't think many people, and certainly the Poles, the Hungarians, those those countries that were were um, conquered by by the Red Army and by Stalinism, um, there wasn't a feeling of, of, of joyous liberation and certainly um, they had to endure um, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering and a lot of you know, a lot of oppression for, until the wall came down and, and those countries became were were, were free at last. Um, so yeah, I don't think the I think the war ended in nineteen forty five obviously, but a cold war began and um, we're still still fighting it in some ways. Uh, I think Russia's a nominal democracy. It's not. It's it's not one that you call healthy by any means. And uh, we still have these these virulent nationalisms in the world, and we still have um, huge huge parts of the globe that are not free. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we tend to have this sort of naive assumption that democracy is something that goes hand in hand with being. <clears throat> Civilized people. Well, I'd argue that you know, humanity isn't that civilized, and uh, right. um, it's it's a very recent thing. It's something that Americans certainly can take too much for granted. It's a very democracy in world history. It's a very it's only the blink of an eye. It's two hundred two hundred fifty years old, and um, and very fragile. and needs to be really really protected and, and carefully carefully uh, carefully nurtured. So it's a very precious thing. Do you think um, 
Hitler would have uh, attacked the West had France and Britain not declared war during the Poland invasion? Do you think he would have just left uh, Western Europe alone and concentrated everything on Poland and then the Soviet Union? Or, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I don't know. I mean, I think that there was the sense of, you know, Lebensraum was the great sort of apparent um, uh, geopolitical aim, which was the living room, you know, for a greater German Reich, and that, that lay to the east, certainly not to the west. Um, so I think that the Nazi-Soviet pact was a very, was a very cynical act by both sides. It was a way of, of uh, delaying the inevitable in some ways. But So I think that um, Hitler was in no position in 1939-40 to attack the Soviet Union. Uh, in fact, most of the senior generals in the Wehrmacht um, went, were much happier to go in 1941-42 um, in terms of attacking any part of Western Europe, they thought it, in 1940. They thought many thought it was too early. It was. Uh, it was. They were. They were going way too way too fast, way too early. Um, and you have to remember that the stunning success of Blitzkrieg in the West. So you know, May of 1940, on this, you know, 18th, 10th of May 1940, the Germans attacked Luxembourg and Belgium and France within six weeks. They they're in Paris, and it was, you know, you'd have to look very hard in history to find that level of, of military success so quick to defeat those democracies, to, to, to defeat France in, in six weeks was extraordinary achievement. Um, so I think that Hitler was surprised by that. Certainly his generals were. Rommel was. I mean, the German people were stunned by it too. I mean, it's an extraordinary victory that came very quick and very fast. And, you have to remember that you know the Germans had spent almost four years to get 50 miles from Paris in World War One, and they were in Paris in six weeks in 1940. So, um, you know, Hitler was was really, I think he was surprised himself. If you look at if you read read widely, you'll see that you know he was he was ecstatic for a reason, which is that it surprised him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. I wonder if he felt the same surprise that his thousand-year reign, you know, <laughs> was cut a little short. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that, um, you know, uh, there were lots of very serious mistakes made along the way, and um, you can you can pretty much blame the uh, the outcome of World War Two on, on one man, and that was that was Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so he insisted on being involved in all the big. The big strategic decisions, obviously, and, and micromanaged battles when he shouldn't have been anywhere near them, and uh, and, and messed up many times, including in 1940. You know, he could have destroyed the entire British army. The mm-hmm. British expedition was lost. 300,000 uh, British guys got off at Dunkirk, which Churchill turned into somehow a, a propaganda victory, mainly through words. But um, uh, you know, they, we were surrounded. Uh, before Dunkirk, and uh, Guderain and Rommel were raring to go and, and finish us off, and they would have done so in 48 hours, but Hitler halted Guderain and, and uh, put, for some reason, put his finger on the pause button, was obsessed with Paris, obsessed with the sort of the historical glory of defeating France, and uh, didn't think strategically enough about how important it was to 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 take out the, what was left of the British Expeditionary Force. And um, he went on to fight another day. 300,000 men is an awful lot of men to, 
and they didn't have weapons and, and tanks, etc. They'd been left behind, but they certainly were able to wear a uniform and fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, there was there were serious errors made all the way through. If you look at the summer of 1940, he had the chance yet again. Hitler had the chance to 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 invade and to defeat uh, the British, uh, which would have changed things really fundamentally. If you think about it, there wouldn't have been a launching pad for D-Day, and the Americans wouldn't have had anywhere to base troops or you know begin Operation Torch or any. Europe would have would would not have been strategically and militarily possible to liberate Europe had Hitler invaded Britain and, and uh, conquered it. And certainly in the Battle of Britain, key decisions made that were wrong, that were that were just uh, that ended in defeat. Um, yeah. Just the experts weren't allowed to get on with the job. Um, had they been, had you let them, it's like listening to doctors today or scientists today. If you listen to the doctors and scientists, then you know, things things turn out differently. If you don't listen to them, then you have you know. Can go wrong? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It reminds me, like, while you're talking about this, it reminds me of the proverb that says, um, pride goes before a fall and haughty, a haughty spirit before destruction. And that is sort of Hitler personified right there. Is like he wanted, he had so much pride and wanted to control everything and took this uh, moment of Dunkirk as, you know, here's what I've done. And yet it is his pride that allowed you know, the British to get away and, you know, it led to his destruction. And just very interesting that that's, you know, it led exactly to that. Yeah. And he was, um, you know, he was so prideful and, um, so flawed that, um, you, if you jabbed at his ego, um, which Churchill very cleverly did in the late summer of 1940, then, um, you could, you could, uh, you could weaken his uh, weaken his ability to respond in a, uh, in a in a clever and strategic way. So when you know we we um, we bombed Berlin, um, I, don't, I don't think we killed anybody. I think it was a very we dropped a few bombs and caused a caused a humiliation because Goering had said he was ahead of the Luftwaffe that the, the, the bomber would never get through, that the German people had nothing to fear from the RAF and from the Allied air forces, and uh, we uh, we hit Berlin in, in uh, the summer of 1940, and it was a, it was a humiliation. People were, you know, Pete Goering was like, "Oh my God, they they got through." They, I've been telling people that they would never manage to get through, and they just did. And it was it was a, a wound that had to be avenged. And so then you had the tit for tat of the Germans then attacking the civilian populations in Britain, Coventry, and then obviously you had. Uh, you know, before that, you had the Blitz and the, the deliberate bombing of a civilian target. Um, they'd done it at Rotterdam, but this was at, in late August of 1940. They decided to strategically change the entire um, approach in the Battle of Britain. Uh, they were very, very close to victory. Um, before, you know, in July and August of 1940, the Luftwaffe had aimed at destroying air bases and and radar installations and the the ground uh, everything on the ground they could that supported the RAF, um, and they were they were very close to 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 really defeating the RAF on the ground. Um, 
just a couple of weeks away from rendering the RAF pretty ineffective in, in several areas. And instead of hitting the airfields and um, the infrastructure of the RAF, uh, they changed their strategy to terror bombing of London, which became the Blitz. I think it was the 6th of September 1940 was when the Luftwaffe launched their first mass raid over a thousand aircraft and hit London um, and terrorized the population properly for the first time. And and yet they were only a week or two away from from uh, from destroying the RAF on the ground. And Hitler had said that. Um, until we had complete control, until the German, until the Luftwaffe had complete control of airspace over the English Channel, he wasn't going to launch Operation Sea Lion, which was the invasion of uh, of England. And he was just literally uh, a week or two away from from uh, destroying the RAF on the ground, and therefore being able to dominate airspace, and therefore being able to invade. Um, so, yeah, again, you know, you. You, you, you push a pin into someone's ego and they react in a way that um, isn't, isn't sensible or strategic. And, and there you go. You, the whole outcome of the Second World War was changed by uh, Goering and Hitler being humiliated by the RAF by a you know, rather pathetic air raid in the summer of 1940. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, you're... Um... Uh, when I when I think of Dresden, I think of Slaughterhouse Five, and then I think yeah. of your book, The uh, Longest Winter. So I want to touch on the Battle of the Bulge real quick. Um, Germany wanted to, like they did with the Dunkirk, they wanted to do the same thing—a repeat with the capture of Antwerp. And um, but my question is, is that after Stalingrad, when the Pincher movement trapped everyone in Stalingrad, the Sixth Army? Didn't Hitler and and some of his generals know that if they had captured Antwerp, that the same thing could have happened? I mean, I I have trouble understanding. I know what the aim was, but I don't know how they could have delayed their eventual defeat with the capture of Antwerp, knowing that they're creating a bulge, and the British in the north and the Americans in the south could have just trapped everyone in that city. What I mean, what are your what? Help me out here. I'm trying to understand why they even launched. Well, that. there was no, you know, there was no. Um, I don't, I don't, there were no senior generals um, who were not SS uh-huh. who thought that um, the Wachtam Rhine, which is basically the code word for the attacks through the Ardennes in December 1944, which became the Battle of the Bulge, that that, that mass um, lightning strike, which actually was, you know, really successful for the first couple of days and t- took us by complete surprise. It was probably the biggest Allied intelligence failure of the war. Um, but the question you're rightly asking is to what end? What, what, what was going to happen even if they did get to the point was that they had to get to Antwerp. That was the aim. and They were going to split the Canadians and British in the north from the Americans to the south and create complete disarray and chaos and, and, and have us on the back foot. But, you know, okay, if you do that, Maybe it prolongs the war by six months, maybe a year, um, but you're still going to lose. Um, especially when you've got the Red Army um, storming towards you on the Eastern Front. Because you have to remember that from August of 1944, um, when Operation Bagration was launched in the East, and that's like an operation that was 10 times the size of the Normandy Overlord campaign. So that's, you know, it was really hard to get your head around just the scale of the the devastation and fighting on the Eastern Front and the, the, 
the impact of that Soviet Red Army advance, it was unstoppable. And then the, the Germans never did stop it. I mean, they, it was just a, a red tide that sometimes swept fast, and sometimes slowed down because of the winter and the weather, etc. But it was the, the Germans didn't stop it and couldn't stop it, and it was and it was going to envelop them at some point anyway. So I think that the, the the crazy rationale that Hitler had certainly anyway was that he if 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 they did reach Antwerp and they did create that that divide in the Allied lines and they did create a sense of, of chaos and confusion which would have which occurred anyway but would have been really serious serious and profound. Um, certainly, if you look at the public opinion back in America and Britain and elsewhere, they've been fighting the war for a long time and to suffer such a serious uh, setback, uh, and it would have been it would have been a defeat. That's that's not that's not um, be about the bush there. That, that would have constituted a serious defeat for the Allies uh, if, if Hitler managed to get that far and, and split the armies. Um, but at the same time, it was you know, it would have, uh, what would have happened long term. Now you could argue that there would have been there might have been a, a reaction against the war back home in Britain and. America, and that maybe the, the idea of unconditional surrender would have been abandoned. That we would have said, okay, now's the time to negotiate. Now's the time to, if if the Germans can find someone who isn't Hitler, uh, if we had a Rommel type figure, uh, now's the time to to sit down and end this and and uh, and go back to Germany's pre-war borders or the warded borders that we can agree on, and then and end it. But uh, I think that was Hitler's hope that um, that he could have had a stronger hand in terms of the possible negotiation of an end of the war on the Western Front, and then he would have marshaled his forces and turned them towards the East. Um, but it was, a, you know, it was it was cloud cookie land basically. I mean, that, that's exactly what um, people thought of it. And so, there's a special word for cloud cookie land in, in German. I forgot what it is, but it was certainly uh, lots of the senior German generals that were involved at that point didn't had no hope of success at all really, of that operation achieving what Hitler wanted it to. They didn't have the men, the supply, the material, the, the air support. Um, when the weather cleared, it was the Allies would very, very quickly dominate, and they did. Um, so it was a last desperate gamble, um, probably prolonged the war by you know, a couple of months. But, uh, we weren't going anywhere very fast anyway by December 1944. We would have had to probably wait until the spring defensive in March and April of 1945 to finish the job off anyway. So mm-hmm. ended up killing a lot of Allied troops. Uh, I think over 18,000 Americans killed. Um, a lot more Germans. Uh, but uh, to what avail? It, was, it just it ended up prolonging the war, I think, for the German people. Well, do you, uh, you know, the, the war is over, the Cold War at least, I would say, majority of it in the East is over. I mean, I'm in the uh, Western Europe is over. Um, you might, I don't know if you agree or disagree on that one, but do you think Russia and Europe will ever have a true friendship? Um, I know that there was, uh, they, I think they called it the game between Britain and Russia to, <laughs> to conquer Asia, but uh, I mean, do you, do you think that there could ever be peace? Between the Russians and, and Europe, yeah, I think that I think I definitely think that you have to what you have to what you have to do is you have to create a stable environment for 
um, democracy to flourish in in Russia, um, for there to be a more open-minded view. For uh, you'd have to get you have to move beyond Putin. Hope he dies of a heart attack or gets a virus or something. Or have to hope long term that in the next decade or so that things will liberalise a lot more in Russia and that um, maybe through a combination of post oil a post oil world where the one thing the Russians have got which is oil disappears in terms of its strategic importance and and, and value um, I think there's lots of things you can do to to uh, create a dialogue and uh, to, to to remove the apparent psychological threats that, that the West poses to to Russia to make things more open trade and trade and commerce is a big part of it um, and when you look below the politics and the and the cold war and the soft sort of the rhetoric that's going on right now you'll see that there have been significant advances in terms of cooperation and partnerships on, on economic and commercial front um, so I think if you can strengthen strengthen Russian democracy and and um, create even further partnerships, both economic and diplomatic, then yeah, there's no reason why the whole of that continent stretching from Siberia all the way to the, the Atlantic can't be can't be at peace and can't be cooperative and can't can't get along. Yeah, you know. It, it, depend, it depends fundamentally on healthy democracy, though. Only, only healthy democracies can can avoid what's happened there. The, the sort of the rhetoric and the the nationalism and the and the division. You have to invest and 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 create and nurture um, good relationships, and you have to create an environment whereby it, it's to the benefit of the average Chinese person, the average Russian, to get along with their neighbours and to see the benefit of that. Um, so, you know, I'm always reminded of the guy, I was in, I was down in your way um, last September um, at Texas A&M and they, there was a Texas a, an Aggie guy who had been an astronaut, he'd been on the space station and um, I said to him, you know, when was the first time you had a really good look at the planet Earth? Because that must be a hell of a moment to look down on that gorgeous globe. And he said, you know, I, I was so busy for quite a while, I think a couple of weeks before I really just looked out of the window and just looked down, it took like half an hour just to look down at the planet. And he said, the first thing I noticed was there were no borders. Um, so, you know, that's something that uh, we have to constantly remind ourselves of, which is that, you know, we've, humankind is the one that creates borders, not, not nature. Mm-hmm. And, um, if we're not careful, nature's going to remind us increasingly that, that things like borders and the artificial constructs of of, uh, of, of humanity are, are not things that may stay around for too long. You can only crap in your own nest for so long before you can't live in it. You know, it's, everyone <laughs> I think knows that. Yeah, you're right. have a good septic system. Well, let's, yeah, uh, let's you can talk. only <laughs> you can you can only have wet markets somewhere for so long before <laughs> really bad viruses. You know, it's like uh, duh. It eventually <laughs> spreads. Well, I want to shift uh, to some of the projects, other projects that you're doing, some books. Um, now, I know you're a big fan of uh, Robert Kappa, as am I. But anytime I think of Robert Kappa, I always think about that Spanish, uh, that loyalist soldier who. Uh, Kappa took a photo of him just as he gets hit by a sniper's bullet. 
But then I'm hearing, well, no, that was actually staged. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a very controversial, it's probably one of the most controversial photographs in the history of photography, certainly war photography. It's the, the picture you're talking about is it's called The Falling Soldier, and I think it was taken in 1936 by you know, Kappa, who was a very young, idealistic um, photojournalist. And um, there are many theories about what exactly happened that day when he uh, took that photograph. Some people say that... Um, it was staged that, you know, the, 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 the guy just fell over and uh, um, Kappa happened to take a photograph as he was falling over that he wasn't actually shot at that moment. Um, other people say that Kappa staged the whole thing and had the guy run down a hillside and fall over and he took, a, took the sort of ultimate propaganda shot of, this, of the Spanish Civil War. Um, so we'll never really know exactly what happened because no one's been able to prove concretely what did happen that day. I think it's probably likely that it, he, he didn't take a picture at the exact moment where a guy got shot um, not not that far from him. Um, but uh, saying that, there, there have been other extraordinary photographs in history of people being, you know, where they captured the moment of their death. There was actually another one, another picture in the Spanish Civil War taken three months earlier of uh, a guy being, guy being killed in you know, that, that's never been disputed, that one image. So um, it's a very complicated uh, story. Um, I think even if you were to accept what is perhaps, certainly from my point of view, is perhaps most likely, which is that um, a bunch of soldiers were fooling around and messing about and uh, ran down a hillside and then one of them fell over and cap, cap got a really good shot that, that looked like a guy being killed. You have to remember that Kappa didn't see the negatives. He didn't. He didn't know that that's what he'd taken. Um, the film was 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 developed in Paris. Um, he, he didn't get to see what he'd actually photographed. Um, so he himself was surprised when he saw the image. How powerful it was! It appeared in Life magazine. It really made his name um, as the great the guy that got so close that he could get a picture of someone actually being killed. Um, so I think that, you know he was a, he was a propagandist as a, as a journalist. It's not a good thing to be if you're a journalist. You shouldn't be a propagandist. But often in wars, people, you know that's exactly what the press become. They become cheerleaders for one side or, or the other. He was a, um, a communist sympathizer. He was definitely a very committed socialist at the time. Uh, the civil war was a big deal. He didn't. He had seen what fascism and nationalism had done to his own country. He was a refugee from from um, fascist Hungary. He was a refugee from fascist Germany. He ended up in Paris in the mid-30s because it was the last safe, safe place he thought for a Jewish refugee in Europe. Um, and he was very committed to defeating fascism. And if that meant he uh, glorified or distorted an image of, of sacrifice or drama in um, of someone dying for a good cause, then I guess in his view, so be it. Um, so, but the danger of talking too much about the, um, the Falling Soldier is that you forget about all the other amazing photographs that he took, which were real, but weren't mm -hmm. staged. And, mm -hmm. and namely the 11 photographs that survived of him on the first wave on D-Day, um, or when I say first wave, I mean, he went in, went in with the, some of the first troops to, to land on, on, the, on Omaha Beach 
Um, and those pictures are extraordinary, as as are the photographs he took in in China and in, you know, in, uh, in Japan in 1938. Um, all the way through his career, he took extraordinary photographs, and he became the greatest combat photographer of World War II for a reason, which is that he was there, you know, on D-Day. He was there. He jumped out of a plane across the Rhine in spring of 1945. He was there when Paris was liberated. He was there in North Africa. He was there in Sicily. He was there in Italy. He was there in so many battles. He was there during the Battle of Britain. And, um, sorry, he was there and during the Blitz in 1941, the um, tail end of it. Um, and so he was he was there and he put his life on the line and ended up being killed in Vietnam. He was the first American to, uh, correspondent to be killed in the um, Indochina um, escapade in 1954. Americans weren't there except for some very small advisory capacity, but um, he was an American citizen by then and. And, and was killed in Vietnam in 1954 because he was looking for a story and was close enough to the action to get killed. So I, I think that he's an extraordinary character, incredibly courageous, beautiful artist, absolutely wonderful artist. So um, to let one photograph in one moment overshadow the rest of his career is kind of unfair. And to be honest, I don't, I couldn't care less. I, I, I you know, whether he. If you staged it, that's a bad thing. I'm, I'm a journalist. I don't agree with that. That's a, that's a big black mark. But um, he didn't stage Omaha Beach. He didn't stage mm-hmm. so many other great events that we only have his photographs to show us how beautiful and how important they were. So I guess it's like a rookie rookie error. Don't do it again. Yeah. Um, but look look at the rest of, the, of his career. It's extraordinary. You know, it's amazing. Because I was going to say, I'm glad you said that because I, I've always been a big fan. And I have some of his uh, books on on the, his photographic works, and I have the last photo of of what he took, I believe, before he stepped on a landmine. And, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a, yeah. So it's a it, photograph of a, a rice paddy field, isn't it? And correct. The rice crossing it. And, That's it. Yeah. So it, for me, it's kind of sad because he was such a great artist, as you said. And I mean, I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. I'm not going to uh, judge him for that one photo, but although I do. I heard that they did find, they think they found the field where the photo was taken, and it's on my bucket list to go there one of these days, so. Yeah, I've been there, actually. I've been to, there's a, actually, about 20 years ago, I went there, and there's a big, big sign, uh, a big effigy of the falling soldier, the same, you know, it's, it's made out of steel, um, but it's right near, the, it's not far from the field where he, where apparently this guy died. But, you know, it's a sort of, it's one of those labyrinthine questions that never gets always seems to get, get more complicated the more you dig deeper. Right. Um, I don't think anybody can definitely say categorically what really happened that day. Mm-hmm. Um, it could very well have been, you know, a guy got shot. <laughs> yeah, it could have very well been. You know, you never know. You know? So you actually wrote a book on um, Kappa, um, and you've written a number of books. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find um, all of his books at Alex's website, alexkershaw.com of course you can also purchase them on amazon go to barnes and noble um and check those out um so alex uh give people a bit of a rundown about where people should go to purchase your books uh well you can go to barnes and noble um independent bookstores are always great we need to protect them especially now we need to to make sure that they don't go out of business because they're incredibly important parts of our culture and 
our communities. The, just imagine if we didn't have an independent bookstore to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can go to Amazon, obviously, and um, my website, and you know anywhere where you can buy uh, buy books online, you should be able to find them. So yeah, definitely. Awesome. Um, well. All right, man. Well, hey, uh, Alex, it's been an incredible conversation. Thank you again so much for just spending your time with us. Um, we greatly appreciate it. And thank you for just all the stuff that you, all the work that you put together to make sure that, like you were referencing earlier in the show, that the the young kids, the, the kids who, you know, are real have been born in the 21st century know what happened in the 20th century um the greatest conflict known to man um and and all the great soldiers uh that fought for not just american freedom but freedom all over the world so alex yeah definitely we just want to say thank you very much for all that you've been doing yeah you're doing a great service for humanity in my opinion Well, thank you very much. It's always a great pleasure to be with you guys. You always ask awesome questions, and it was great to meet you last fall. Or oh, yeah. Last summer, wasn't it, in Houston? And keep on doing what you're doing, because it's really important that you guys keep keep doing your job and doing it so well so that you can spread the message that people like me believe in so much. Right. We will. Thank you so much for that. Well, thank you very much, man. All right, ladies and gentlemen, so that was our conversation with Alex. Alex, thank you again so much for being on the show. Awesome pleasure. Thank you so much. It was an honor. Thanks for inviting me back. Anytime you guys want, I'll be there. You got it, man. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it. Um, thank you again so much, Alex, for joining us. Alan, what's going through your head? Finally, I have some questions answered. Yeah. Uh, the big one, why in the world did Hitler think that the Operation Watch on the Rhine, which as we know it as the Battle of the Bulge, why would he have thought that it would be a success. And I remember, you know, in July of 1944, um, the Operation Valkyrie, where they tried to kill Hitler. With Tom Cruise. Yes. Very good movie, I thought. I I love Tom Cruise movies, but I I won't digress on that part. Good. (laughs) The um, Hitler no longer trusted his regular officers, the German Wehrmacht officers, that he was now surrounding himself with SS men. And, um, you know, the, the, the regular German army officer would have told them, okay, okay, we capture Antwerp, but then it's going to be like another Stalingrad, okay? We have the city, but then they're going to have the, the British, Canadians, and Americans will, will perform a pincher movement and trap our guys in Antwerp, and then what? We'll have, we'll have gained nothing. But he was surrounded by SS men that were like, yeah, 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 let's do it. Great, mm-hmm. great idea. Echo chamber. Yep. Yeah. So... Um, but it was fascinating just listening to uh, his perspective on things because he has actually interviewed people that were involved in some of these Countless people. operations that, that we sit and we talk about. Yeah. You know, there's, I always like to say there's the astronaut and then there's the astronomer. Well, you know, Alex has spoken to the astronauts. And, and funny thing is, he's actually spoken to an astronaut who's yeah. up in the space station. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he's, he's, uh, He's he's talked with he's done a lot of research and it involved people who actually were in the thick of the battle. Yeah. Well, 
Ladies and gentlemen, you can purchase, uh, like we talked about earlier, you can purchase any of his books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores, check those out. Uh, it'd be great to help them out. Uh, you can go on to his personal website, alexkershaw.com. I can guarantee, we can guarantee, the Sons of History have put a stamp of approval on his books. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will definitely enjoy whichever book that you choose to get. Um And, well, that brings us to the end of the show. And as always, we like to end on a scripture. And I'd like to end on the scripture that I had referenced earlier, um, the Proverbs 16, 18, where it says, and I sort of switched the two, but it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that is sort of sums up um, Adolf Hitler. I mean, wickedness, but... You know, I was going to say who go who else went to Oxford, C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says that the worst sin is pride because it is the anti-God. And Adolf Hitler was the type of guy. He was the guy who saw himself as God. Um, and you see that a lot um, during that World War II. You know, you see that every once in a while when somebody gets so much power, they begin viewing themselves in this demigod perspective. And when pride sets in, the only alternative to bring you down is destruction. And it can be the destruction of your very being. And that is exactly what happened, not just himself, but the entire country of Germany. Yeah, his image was everywhere, and you had to swear an allegiance to him. You know, we we swear an allegiance to the Constitution um, to to protect and defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Mm -hmm. Uh, There it was... You're pledging your allegiance to a man. Right. Can't do it. Nope. Can't do it. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for the show. Alan, where can people find us? They can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Mm -hmm. They can also find us on our very own website, www.thesonsofhistory.com. Amen. And we we are both uh, reporters, or writers, reporters. We're both writers for the Epoch Times. We're um, reporting what we know. Yeah, well, I'm, I report history. I don't know about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm reporting. You, you, have, you have pretty good perspectives on things. Thanks, friend. Yeah, anytime, friend. Yeah, I can't wait re- to reach over and punch you in the face. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. And then uh, Tuesday night, I have my uh, Tuesday night history. And Thursday night, you have your Thursday night live chats. That's right. So um, yours is on Instagram. Mine are on Facebook. But That's I believe... Right. Uh, but we're gonna. You're you're putting them all on YouTube, correct? I'm putting yours on YouTube mine, for sure. Okay. Uh, mine, it's it's stacked, so it's. I don't know how that would how that would work. I will mm. I will look into that and see if that'll that'll happen. But both of them, Tuesday night and Thursday night, same time, 9 p.m. Central Time, mm-hmm. 10 p.m. Eastern Time. As Eastern if time. people don't know. Well, yeah. I love how you do. What I, do you work for the news? No, no, no. <laughs> Actually, I, I'll have people go. Okay, if it's uh, 8 o'clock our time, then what time is it in New York? I'm it's like, well, it's not easy, man. You yeah. talk about screwing things up for me a number of times, that has happened. Well, I can understand if it's Indiana or Phoenix, where Arizona, where they don't really Yeah, switch. I think we called the dog Indiana. Ah. Uh, you're welcome. All right, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, that brings us to a halt. Ah, not a stalemate, an end. Here from the Temple of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you later. Thank you to all of the veterans out there who gave their utmost uh, for our country. Mm-hmm. Happy Memorial Day um, before we sign off. And um, thank you for your sacrifice. Yes, and um, you know, when you get a chance, uh, Memorial Day 
commemorates those who have lost their lives. Mm-hmm. So if you can go visit a cemetery and, you know, military cemetery and put a, put a flag, put a, put a, a rose, anything, mm-hmm. just because those who are still alive will see this and it will show the gratitude that, that our veterans are seeking. That's right. All right. See you later, ladies and gentlemen.